Hi everyone, Sam here. Thank you so much for listening to The Policy Dispatch. Before we dive in, if you want to enjoy premium access to the podcast and want to read or listen to the unmissable and informative journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to the first Policy Dispatch of 2023 and our ninth episode. I'm your host, Sam Morgan. Thank you for joining me. Today, we're going to be delving into the world of the European Union's emissions trading system, the ETS, the world's largest carbon market, which has been running for very nearly 20 years. Just before Christmas, EU lawmakers, diplomats and policymakers agreed on a mammoth-sized reform of the ETS, with new rules and changes to the system soon coming into force. To go over what that agreement means for the carbon market and how it will affect Europe's ongoing energy transition, I'm going to be talking to Emma Wiesner, a Swedish member of the European Parliament that was part of the team that brokered the ETS deal. Moreover, Emma is also an energy engineer, so unlike some politicians, absolutely knows her stuff. Just before we get into all things ETS, it's time for the first policy dispatch quiz question of the year. Today I'm asking you, between 2005 and 2019 the ETS managed to reduce the emissions of the sectors it covers by what percentage? Was it A, 15%, B, 25%, C, 35%, or D, 45%? Answer at the end, as always. Now, on with the show. So, Emma, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this episode of the Policy Dispatch. This is our ninth episode. Uh, We're going to be looking at the emissions trading system today following an agreement by the EU just before Christmas on an update to rules, which you were a part of. Um, So maybe you could give us an idea of how important the emissions trading system actually is. Is it indeed accurate to call it the EU's flagship climate policy? And also what drew you to this pilot as well? Wow, we're deep diving into it. Uh, First of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's been an honor working on on this file and it's been an adventure. Uh, I worked, I joined the European Parliament two years ago and I worked with it almost ever since I started. Uh, It was launched um, in June uh, or July 2021. Um, And since then, we're trying to shape the the future of EU's climate policy. And the ETS is in the center of that. It's the centerpiece of the puzzle in shaping the the net zero target for 2050. Uh, It's in the center of of how we really can achieve climate action uh, by pricing carbon. And it still is uh, the world's most uh, excessive, um, extensive uh, climate tool. Uh, Basically, it's covered the most emissions in the world. And uh, until we see a a working working cap and trade scheme in, in China, uh, I think it will, will be for a while still. I mean, it is, it is the, the cap and trade that covers the most emissions with an effective price on carbon. So I, think, I don't think you can underestimate the, the importance of this tool. Um, and what we have done, uh, as you said, negotiations throughout the, the last fall in trying to shape the next generation, how it will look like. Um, and all of the, the details of the scheme. And I must say, I'm, I'm very proud being part of that, that journey. I'm very proud of the outcome. We've really done something that will shape up the climate, climate schemes and climate tools of, of Europe. Um, and we have achieved a lot. 
uh, I would say. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, the ETS is sort of synonymous with industry because of the sectors it covers. Um, one of the parts of the ETS, this was a big contentious part, was um, the issue of free allowances, yeah. uh, which under this agreement are going to be phased out by 2034. don't know if my dates are right or not. Yeah. Um, firstly, how difficult was it to do that, given the current situation we're in with you know, the Inflation Reduction Act in the US and this idea of offshoring? Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, that deadline, which is more than a decade away, Maybe you can understand, you can sort of explain the, the logic behind that timeline as well. Yeah, I mean the the, the entire ETS it, it's so many pieces uh, in that package. I mean the ETS is a package of itself. It's it's the main element of the Fit for Fifty Five package where we price carbon, but then ETS in itself contains so many different details uh, of this, uh, and that's why I'm so proud of of what we achieved and the outcome. But I'm also not satisfied. So first of all, let me let me say that I'm not I'm not completely satisfied with all of the, the details of of it, and that needs to be said. However, that we have now an outcome that we managed to put all of the pieces together and sort of uh, lay the the ETS puzzle and solve all of the remaining issues before Christmas. I think that was a, a big achievement. And I mean, just looking at the current ETS that we're having covers about forty percent of Europe's emission today. It's only 40% that is the, of the carbon that has a price. Uh, whereas after this new generation of ETS, what the outcome of the negotiations, uh, the ETS will cover almost 75, almost 80% of the emissions. So we kind of also double the scope of the ETS. And, and that is, I think, what I'm most proud of. Almost, I mean, soon we're going towards 100% of Europe's emission that will have a price. And you cannot underestimate the value of putting a price on carbon when it comes from phasing out emissions. Uh, so that, that needs to be said. Um, but in order to do so, in order to extend the ETS, there's so many parts uh, that need to come together. And the free allowances was, was one of the, the most critical elements. And as you said, it was a struggle um, to find unanimity and, and to find agreement on that. We were not unanimous, but even to have an agreement between the larger groups, it was very difficult to find to find it just because free allowances is not a hot topic and heavily debated. And it's basically um, how much will the industry pay? How much of the allowances will you get for free? And how much will actually be placed on the market? Uh, and until recently, the industry has, has been given quite substantial share of the allowances for free. They still have an incentive to decrease their emissions because if you get allowances for free and you decrease your emissions, you can sell those allowances and have an income. So it's still an incentive to decrease your emissions. But um, is it reasonable to hand out emissions for free when we are in a climate crisis and a climate emergency? And and I would say no to that question. And that's one of the parts that I'm not satisfied with. I mean, it was according to me, we would have stopped giving out free allowances yesterday. Um, and we should have had an extensive price on carbon, a real price on carbon, not only a, a figurative or paper price on carbon. And that's why I think we need to, to move towards facing out the free allowances. However, why is it so difficult? Okay, then you need to look at what are the arguments used by the conservative groups and the industry associations and all of the ones wanting to have free allowances. And we have the issue of carbon leakage, which has been questionable and, and debated. Is there proof of carbon leakage that an industry, if their carbon is priced in Europe, will they really shut down that plant and go abroad? Maybe they will. Uh, and there is risks for that, uh, which has been tried to, to estimate. 
Um, and the answer to that problem has been the free allowances. That's why we have the free allowances. Like, so that the steel industry and concrete industry and glass industry and paper industry, that they're not moving abroad and simply just we're exporting the problem outside of Europe instead. Um, so we needed to have a good answer to that. In order to start phasing out the free allowances, you need to go to the root cause why we have them and try to tackle those arguments. And that's where CBAM comes into the, 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 the picture. Uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism that was in the Fit for 55 package, a really important part of, of the deal and part of the package. If you say that also imported goods, if you import steel from, from China or Asia or US, you also need to have a price on carbon. So if they don't have a carbon price of their own, uh, you need to pay that price by the border. And by doing so, when you introduce CBAM, introducing that price at the border, you are saying that, okay, but then the, the risk of carbon leakage uh, is removed or minimized. And that's when you can start removing the free allowances. So me from a like ideological, ideological <laughs> sorry, always hard to pronounce, me from a principal perspective, <laughs> I would have loved to see free allowances already being phased out, having a real price on carbon. But in order to convince um, convince the broad spectra of political groups, we needed also to have something on the table to actually tackle carbon leakage. With CBAM, with Timmermans included CBAM in the Fit for 55, that was for the first time possible. And that's why it's coming so late. That's why we haven't done it yesterday. Uh, but, um, or yesterday as in historic, that's why we haven't done it before in the no. previous ETS revisions. But in this revision, it was possible. And we have an agreement where we actually start facing in CBAM. And as much as we face in CBAM, we face out the free allowances. It takes some time. It's not until 2034. But we're doing it and we're showing that we're actually now moving towards a real price on carbon. It really does sound like you're juggling 25 different sort of juggling balls at the same time. 100%. That's exactly how it was. At the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the free allowances was obviously a, a really complex issue to get an agreement on, like you say. Another one is, you know, ETS generates billions and billions of euros every year from selling revenues. Um, how those revenues have been spent in the past have been largely up to national governments. Um, now, at least, everything's going to have to be spent on climate, right? Um, what counts as climate will still be up to those national authorities. So how are you in the EU, policymakers, lawmakers, um, going to keep track of that, where it's spent? Is there anything, um, sort of a government mechanism that's going to check how these countries are spending their money? Or is it just really a, a matter of trust that, you know, Germany is going to spend all of its revenues on uh, wind power or mm. whatever. You know, how, do you, how do you keep track? I mean, first of all, this was one of the, the points I thought was most disappointing when I got like first knew all of the details of the ETS. Because I thought it's a perfect system. It's a cap and trade. We put a price on carbon and money is collected from the emitting industries. And then those monies are used to the innovation fund supporting innovation in those industries emitting. So they're sort of financing their own uh, emission reduction scheme. I mean, or in, they're financing the new technologies that will reduce the emissions. So it's a double win. But you have an incentives to decrease the emissions, but you also have get the money 
to find new technologies. I thought it was a circular system. And then you realize it is kind of <laughs> a small part is going to the innovation fund, but most of the money is going back to the member state. And I was really disappointed when I found that out. I, I really thought it was like industry paying for industry, but now it's a little bit more like industry is paying to the member states. So, I mean, first of all, to really to really make sure that all of that money is used on climate purposes. I mean, you, you should not use money coming from from industry paying for their missions and then doing investing those money into new activities that actually could potentially increase emissions that that's just a hole in the head i mean that would be insane um so that was one of the most important parts that we that we did in the cts vision making sure that the the income going into the member states those revenues needs to be spent on climate purposes but the the short answer is no there is no mechanism making sure that that is happening but international cooperation is, to a large extent, built on trust. And I think the member states, we need to, to trust the member states' governments and the governments need to trust each other that they're all doing now and following the regulation. The regulation says everything should be spent into, uh, into climate purposes. But we have added provisions on transparency, more precise reporting uh, on the funds, how the funds are being used. And hopefully that can lead to more certainty that the member states are following the guidelines and, and the rules. Let's hope so. I guess there is a, a sort of start of a realization at the moment that spending money on these future-proof technologies is like a license to print money as well. Like the people are going to realize that spending this money is going to make more money in the future. One would hope to think. I think the energy crisis also helps people realize now that we need to have um, clean energy and, and um, cheap energy into, into our systems. Another part of the, the ETS deal was um, a separate ETS, a mini ETS, ETS2. There's been all these different ways to call it that's going to cover road transport and buildings. That's supposed to kick in in 2027, depending on how things go. Um, what are the potential risks of this system as far as you're concerned and how are regulators going to make sure that it's actually implemented correctly? I mean, first of all, I think there's nothing mini to it. Uh, it's absolutely not mini. I mean, looking at the emissions of Europe uh, and the biggest share of of the increase of DTS covering from covering 40% till 75% of Europe's emission, it is uh, extension to building and transports. Building and transport sectors has been sectors where uh, we have not had a price on carbon, where we see that gas is still used for heating, for example, to a large extent in the building sector. And we have problems uh, with the transport sector. I mean, that those are sectors where emissions have increased throughout time. All of the other sectors, emissions are decreasing, but in the transport sector, they're not. So adding this extra ETS uh, system, or uh, I would never say mini, but the, the ETS2 for building a road transport, it's absolutely essential in making sure more of the emissions are covered. Those sectors would still be in the ESR. So they're still part of effort sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning that the member states still need to make sure that those sectors reach the targets. But the ETS2 adds a tool of doing that, adds the pricing functioning. Some member states have high taxes on, on fuels, I mean, carbon taxes. Sweden, for example, uh, my, my home country, already have a high uh, carbon tax on, uh, on fossil fuels. But all of the member states does not. Um, so this is, provides a tool of introducing such pricing uh, to reduce those, those emissions. That means, and now going into the risk of, of the scheme, 
that means that households will be directly affected by a European cost. Normally, it is administrated via the member states. And I mean, the EU is not really pricing households to that extent today. I mean, we have we have costs that are related to EU, uh, but then it's not a direct cost coming from, from an EU scheme. This would be such scheme. And that, of course, brings political risks and socioeconomical risks. And those uh, we have discussed and debated a lot. And I would say that's our, that those are the biggest challenges for the scheme. I mean, to create acceptance for adding uh, price on carbon in those sectors, to add, uh, have acceptance for adding a climate framework on new sectors, sectors where households are included. I think it's absolutely necessary if we're going to reach the climate targets. I think we need to price all emissions in all sectors. So that means that the means that the household sector also needs to be covered. But I understand also that it's sensitive to a lot of people. So what we did in the negotiations to create acceptance is that we have embedded uh, emergency break, a mechanism making sure that if the prices are as high as they are today, and we should remember this is a dramatic um, situation that we're in with high energy prices, the ETS is designed to reach the 2030, 2040, 2050 targets when it comes to climate. So it's a long-term policy framework, meaning now when you have a short-term crisis and really high energy prices, the, the emergency situation that we're having is sort of doing the ETS job. Um, I mean, what you want to, to achieve with an ETS is to have a high price on carbon and emissions uh, to create incentives to decrease your energy use. I think all consumers understand and realize today that that's already happening. I mean, all consumers are aware of their energy bill. But that was not the case only two years ago. Energy was a low share of, of, of the, the household's um, income and or the cost of, of, of households. And... Um, People did not reflect on how we used electricity. I mean, France, Italy, uh, Belgium still have a lot of gas in households for for heating. Um, and that is a fossil fossil source of energy, which was highly um, reliant on, on Russia. We knew about the ris- these risks, but still nothing was done to, to reduce it. And we need to have a long-term policy framework creating the incentives to reduce the gas uh, in that, those buildings and to reduce making electric vehicles more cost efficient so we can reduce the use of, of fossils in the transport sector. So I would say it's a very important uh, tool, but we need to have things like the emergency break. We have the social climate fund also providing support to households like income support or whatever schemes the national governments uh, want to choose. But we have also a tool to help the most vulnerable ones. We also delayed the introduction of the ETS too, so we have more time to adjust to the thought of, of how to, to administrate and use this. But I'm actually very proud of, of having it introduced. But I would say that political risks and creating acceptance will be the, the biggest um, issues or uh, the biggest risks in implementing it. Hi everyone, Sam here again. Just wanted to remind you and maybe your colleagues as well that premium access to the pod and Foresight's brilliant journalism is just a click away. Try a subscription for 30 days for just €29. That gives you access to our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Follow the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. I mean, I I was very surprised when um, you were able to 
broken agreement on it, really, given the last sort of 12 months or so of, like you say, everyone suddenly being very conscious of their gas bill and their electricity bill. Um, and, oh, there's going to be another Gilets jaunes movement and if this thing ever comes in. You know, it, it, yeah. it does seem to have been a real, a real success on, on your part. Um, the problem is, I mean, just to add, I mean, the problem is then how are we going to reach the climate targets? Because the ESR targets have been here for decades. The member states know they have to reduce emissions in the transport sector, but still it didn't happen. Uh, and the member states and a lot of the governments, the council actually supported this more than the parliament. The council with the national governments, they see that they don't have the tools for themselves. And it's easier to be a government introducing such a scheme for example, pricing fuels, if you're doing it, everyone at the same time. You are not being the bad guy here. We're all doing it together or doing it jointly. Uh, so it's actually very supported by, by the council. And that I think also parliament needs to, to understand mm -hmm. to this. But we also added uh, one more thing, one more like safety feature. So it was the timing, it was the, the emergency break, but then we also introduced a price uh, stabilization mechanism, um, making sure that the price of the ETS2, it needs to be predictable. What happened now with energy bills rising super fast, it's shocking the households. That cannot happen. I mean, this is an EU instrument. Uh, we need to, to provide predictability to the households. If you're going to impose this on households, it needs to be predictable. So we have a price stability mechanism. So if the price reaches a certain level, um, more um, allowances are released into the scheme in order to smoothen and flatten out the curve so we don't have price shocks. And that was very important. So kind of a price cap. It's not a price cap, but it will have a price cap um, mechanism behind it. So price, price check. Yeah. I mean, I, I asked you up top about whether or not the ETS deserves to be called the, the flagship EU climate policy. I mean, I guess when you look at what this ETS2 covers, this is where you start getting into things like the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive and, and, and you know, engine standards and CO2 targets where those then have to be achieved in order to make this thing work or to mean, you know, they will make this ETS2 redundant, ideally, right at a, a certain point if every building or the other, Or the other way around. I yeah. mean, you could also say that we're trying to regulate now on, in terms of climate in many different areas because we want to achieve our targets, but if you have an effective ETS price, if you have a price on carbon, um, we don't. Ha we would, at the end, don't need the other regulations. That would be the best case scenario because we would innovate, we would find new technologies, and we as politicians are often not the best ones to tell what are the new technologies. My my in my, in my uh, career as engineer, that that's basically what I learned. Like you cannot predict industry, you cannot project technology. It will always outsmart you. Uh, so uh, I think it's a it's a perfect tool uh, from politics to provide to, to industry and to technology. We give you a price. We know that fossils will cost. And it's also an ideological point of view in this. I mean, if you, you harm environment, you need to also pay the price that, that you're doing. Um, it's easier if you pollute a lake uh, to pay the price for, for remove those pollutions from the water. But... ETS and uh, for, with carbon carbon dioxide, it's all much slower. I mean, the the damage of what you're emitting now, it will happen in 50 years uh, because of, of natural boundaries. And that's why we need to price it today. So for first, we have that argument uh, that it's a like ideological point of view for me as a liberal. Like if you, you harm and hurt someone, you need to pay uh, for the damage that you caused. It's that perspective, but also it's technology neutral. So we don't know what are the alternative 
solutions. Like if you're going to regulate eco-design or performance in buildings or politi- politicians are trying to shape the way to a carbon-neutral future, but we're not really quite sure how it will look like. Yeah. Maybe it will be the most cost-efficient to do energy efficiency in buildings, or it will be on the product side, or we will um, find complete new type of transport, modes of transport, or new type of cars. I mean... We, exactly, exactly. And that's why what I like about DTS, the, the price is set and then the outcome, what technology will come out in the end, uh, it's, it's a bit unpredicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's the beauty of it. Oh, you said about how the scope has increased with this EDS agreement. Um, something that seemed to float under the radar, excuse the pun, mm-hmm. um, was the maritime sector being included for the first time. Um, shipping globally is something like the same as Germany in terms of emissions, um, but it's going to be covered by carbon pricing for the first time. Um, was that a big win for the parliament? It seemed to almost be an easy agreement from the outside. Yeah, we didn't do that in the same trialogue as everything else. We did it, uh, I think, in November. So maybe that's also why it has been a little bit under the radar, like the pun. Um, but I mean, going from 40% of emissions covered to 75%, I mean, it's evident that more sectors have been added. <laughs> and quite, a, quite a big share of Europe's emissions have been added. Uh, and the first ETS, it was a stationary combustion units, um, which was quite straightforward in a way. I mean, the, pretty much the ones having a pipe uh, where smoke comes out. Um, and uh, uh, they don't move either. They stay in one place. They don't come from another country. No, exactly. So like <laughs> the production units, uh, energy production, the, the industrial production units. Uh, now we are making the, the ETS much more advanced in a way, much more complex and uh, comprehensive. So it is the road transport and the buildings, which I think are, are absolutely necessary, big share of the emissions. But that's not enough. And I think it's maritime, but also aviation and waste incinerations that have been added that I'm really proud of. Maritime, because, I mean, it's 2% of the global emissions. Maritime sector has done very little uh, about their emissions. They are now under international conventions, uh, meaning that member states are not allowed to tax the fuel for maritime transport, which means that they are still burning like the dirtiest of crude oil. I mean, it's really the worst, worst, worst type of oil coming out of the refineries or not even coming out of refineries. It's like the worst part of, of, of the oil. It's the, it's the really, sorry the expression, shitty oil <laughs> that is used uh, in many cases for, for maritime sector. And we see that they can use other type of, of fuels. They could use, even using cleaner fossil fuels would help a lot. Uh, going into natural gas, for example. Ideally, ideally, <laughs> ideal, it would of course not be fossil. We would go into next generation fuels or electrification, etc. But the thing is, they haven't even started that journey. I mean, it, maritime industry is far far away. Uh, and, and that's why it's really important step that they are now included. Aviation has been included for a while, but they always had exemption and so much free allowances. They had almost 80% free allowances uh, until very recently. So I think that's also big progress that since they already were included, but had so many exemptions, it's also a little bit under the radar that they are now included in the ETS uh, without the exemptions. And, and that is quite huge. But every time I say, oh, aviation is included, someone is always saying, but they were already were. But okay, they were, but they also weren't. Yeah. Um, and that's a big, uh, big deal. Yeah, um, things are changing. It almost seems like yeah. the EU is becoming more serious about these kind of things. Say, in the, you know, these we need to price all emissions. Yeah, ICAO 
You haven't done enough. And that was a very important part of the negotiations. Like if they then present a global price on carbon, if they present their tool of their own, um, the EU would then listen to that. And we would say, okay, but we're not going to double regulate you. That's not what we want. But until you don't have a price uh, on the table, then we're going to do it because we cannot wait anymore. Because um, the shipping association and also the, the aviation, they are terrified of having um, um, a jigsaw puzzle of different regulations. Like, okay, but now the boat is entering this area. Okay, now a new set of regulation enters and they need to do new, new things. I mean, that's the worst for them because it makes uh, one journey from one continent to another an absolute administrative nightmare. So, of course, they want to have a global, uh, global agreement. Um, and, and they managed so far to, to have a global agreement, but now that global agreement is not, not enough because they don't carbon, they don't uh, tax carbon or they don't price carbon. I think you said about waste incineration as well. Is that going to get yeah. covered straight away? That's one of my favorites. Oh, <laughs> yes. That's, garbage. <laughs> that was at some point during negotiations. Peter Lisa, our, our head negotiator, our rapporteur, he, he named me the ambassador of waste. Uh, I spent two summers working on a waste incineration plant. Uh, so I know a lot about waste uh, incineration. Um, and Sweden and Denmark are two of the member states that already have included waste incineration in the ETS. Mm-hmm. So it all, it's all actually hidden within brackets in an annex. So in this annex, there's a list of um, installations, stationary combustion units that I said that are included in the ETS. But then on the stationary energy production unit, in brackets, it says not if it is hazardous or municipality waste treatment then that's exempted. But it's only in brackets and very vague. It's like, it's like a bit like it could be exempted if you wanted to, or it depends on how you define hazardous waste treatment or um, municipality waste treatment plant. So for a Sweden example, we have district heating uh, that uses uh, municipality waste. I mean, what cannot be recycled, those fractions are sent to combustion. We're using that and that not hazardous waste treatment. It's just it's a fuel that is used for for district heating. So the Swedish authority said, this is not an exemption. We should have this included in DTS. And so did Denmark. And I think it's one of the Baltic member states that already done it. Um, so that, that tiny line in brackets means that um, it's very unclear if it should be included or not. Member states can now pick and choose if they see it as hazardous waste or not. But you can argue municipality waste is not hazardous waste. Um, but it means that we're not also having not a, not a level playing field. Um, for example, we have a lot of member states like Italy and UK, uh, not a member state anymore, but uh, they still send a lot of their municipality waste to Sweden uh, and Denmark because they don't have efficient um, waste uh, incineration units. Right. If you combust it, if you if you burn it there, you cannot use the heat because you don't have a district heating system. It makes sense to send it to a member state that has uh, a district heating, so the efficiency is much higher if you burn it and have both electricity and heat. Sorry, I'm very technical about this, but no, this, this is one of this my favorite topics. This is one of my favorite topics. Which means, but but then if you send it to Sweden, you would have a price on carbon. Whereas if you burn it in another member state, uh, you don't, uh, which absolutely makes no sense. And it's also part of like the waste hierarchy. If you want to recycle more, we need to make sure that there's an incentive in recycle more. And this happens if you also have a price on carbon when combustioning it. Um, so there's a lot of arguments why waste should be included. The commission did not. 
And we asked them, like, why didn't you do it? And, I mean, in behind the lines, you could tell, like, basically the commission didn't have time or resources to do it, which I think is one of the worst arguments. But uh, I, I also have respect for the commission being having a hard workload. Um, so basically, the, the principle is there. They should be included, but they have not been yet. So that was one of the parliaments, was one of, one of the most important elements of the parliament mandate to include waste incineration. We really want waste incineration included. Um, however, uh, it was very hard to convince the council. Council absolutely did not want it and said, oh, we have not, we have not looked at it. There's no impact assessment, all of these normal arguments if you don't want something to happen. Um, and at the end, the other political groups um, saw like, okay, but there are other things in the ETS that are more important. Maybe we should fight harder for that and drop the waste incineration. But I said, no, over my dead body, waste incineration should be included. The and then I became the ambassador of waste. Uh, so in the, in the trialogues, in the final rounds, I was one of the, the biggest or hardest advocates for, for including waste incineration. And at the end of the day, we did not give in. And now it's included. It's not until 2028. I'm really sorry about that. I wanted it, as I said yesterday. So Sweden, Denmark has done it for a few years now. So it's it's not a it's not something weird. We already know who the or we know what these installations are. We know where they are, and we know how much they emit. They're already um, most often already part of the ETS for the other fuels that they have. Um, and there's and they are stationary. Like there's it's nothing nothing conventional. I mean, look at maritime. I mean, they are a complete new industry with boats moving around all around the, the globe. They are included now. Yeah. That's a much more challenge, uh, challenging really industry. Exactly. Whereas stationary waste combustion units, come on, guys. It's, you know what goes in, you know what comes out. And we know where they are and what they're located and they know how much they emit. So. Um, but we need to have an impact assessment. The commission will, will look at that and then they will draw um, a proposal where waste incineration should be included from 2028. So at the end, it is there. It should be included. It's very clear from the, from the legal text that we all agreed on. Um, but so with a delay. Political agreement is there. Political agreement. The policy needs to be formulated. Uh, the commission needs to do an impact assessment as they normally do. And, and to be fair, it wasn't a part of the this impact assessment. So the commission will look at it. The commission civil servant will, will write the text on how it should look like and all of that. But basically we're saying it should be done. It should be in there. Um, council said, like, if if they found difficulties with it, of course they cannot present it. No, okay, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want them to. If they found substantial difficulties, I wouldn't want them to present it. But to be fair, this is. I really have a hard time to see what those substantial difficulties would be. To be honest. So that's that's one thing that's going to be you know something to look out for in the coming months. Maybe I don't know. Like you say, commission's got a big workload, so. Do you have any idea when? Oh, but there, it's it's already. I mean, in the legal text, it says the dates, like when the impact assessment should be done and right. when, what year, what year it should be presented. Uh, so often, when we want the commission to do something, to do an assessment or or anything, we need to put a date. So the commission have that. So it's in the legal text. That's one thing. Um, what other sort of big milestones will you be keeping a track of? in terms of the CTS implementation? What are the next big things that we can... I mean, now for? we need to have support from Parliament. So we did tons of, of heavy negotiations throughout the, the fall and December, I mean, the days before Christmas. Um, we, now we need to have support from the Parliament. I really hope we get it. I think we should have it. I mean, the political groups were satisfied at the end. There are many compromises. As I said, I'm not happy with everything, which normally is a good sign that it is a compromise and, and has the potential to, to be voted on. But you should never say, you should never open the champagne until you know it's actually there. 
So whew, until then, I will not be calm, <laughs> so to say. Um, but but then we go into what's really interesting. I mean, looking at the, the rest of the, the, the parliamentary term, what I will do, and I will work on sustainable carbon cycles and carbon removals. And for me, I think it's really interesting going into the next generation of negative ETS, mm-hmm. the minus emissions. Can we do an ETS with, with the negative certificates? Can we start purchase and buying uh, also what's, what's taken out of of the atmosphere or out of the, the emissions. So like in a, you know, in a utopian kind of system, people would earn money for removing carbon from the atmosphere under, under a system, basically. Yeah, that, that's, I think that would be absolutely necessary because if we're going to reach net zero or by 2050, we will need to have negative emissions. IEA is quite clear with that. And we need to have also carbon removal from, from the atmosphere. And if we're going to achieve that, if you look at the incentives, like when you emit emissions, you have an incentive um, to reduce your emissions to lower that cost. I mean, the, that's what the ETS is doing, putting a price on carbon so the companies have an incentive to, to decrease. Um, or if, if you want to become net zero, you can buy negative certificates uh, to reduce that. Um, but if then... Um, then that means also you have a double incentive to decrease your emissions. First, you want to reduce the cost of DTS, and you also want to reduce the cost of buying negative certificates, meaning that the system will sort of phase itself out. Because um, if you have a lot of emissions now, you want to decrease them tomorrow and keep decreasing them, meaning the, the will of paying for negative emissions will decrease over time, and no one invests in such a market. <laughs> Uh, we need to find a market um, that is steady, uh, that you create a long-term uh, will of, of investment um, in that market. And we will need, and, and those CCS plants, CCU plants, carbon removal in forestry, um, carbon removal from agriculture. There's a lot of things covered here. It's a very interesting file. The commission now set the frame on, okay, how should a, a negative emission be uh, be framed. What's how do you find um, a negative source of emission? Mm-hmm. The next thing that I think we need to look at on the European level is okay. How can we how can we stimulate that? How can we increase the will of investment and creating a market for those certificates? I mean, now there's sort of a bilateral market. The ones having emissions want to pay to to be mm-hmm. net zero, but that's not a long term solution. We need to have a long term solution where you also get paid for for. I mean, producing I mean, negative certificates. I guess that's where the EU's experience with the, the full fat ETS will come in then, right? I mean, it took a while for the ETS to start doing its job after it was implemented. So one would hope that this new system, or part of, would it be part of the ETS? Would it be a completely new system? That's, that's what, all yeah, the that's all the things we need to sort out. Yeah. The problem, I think, I, I think it, at least for a start, it should be a separate system. Uh, because mainly because of pricing reasons. I mean, the cost of reducing one ton of CO2, uh, I think um, uh, if you are in a normal emitting industry, it's much lower than compared to the cost of removing one ton of CO2 from from uh, a chimney yeah. in CCS, for example, uh, or from forestry. So the cost of negative emissions so far is much higher. We want it to become lower and it probably will be. Um, but mixing the two could be difficult from, from that perspective in the mm-hmm. beginning. But in the end, I mean, it could also be a, a merge system where you, you have them together. I mean, that would be easier in, in many ways. Exciting stuff. It's all, um, I, yeah. <laughs> I wish that we had more than sort of half an hour to, to get into all of this, but I think that's been a real great introduction, shall we say, to what this new emissions trading system is going to look like. Um, thank you, Emma. 
for joining us for this episode. It's been really interesting and um, best of luck for all of the work going forward. Thank you. <laughs> so there we go. The emissions trading system is a huge beast of a policy, which is going to continue to underpin the EU's climate work in the coming years. The agreement struck at the end of 2022 might not be perfect, but there's going to be a new system in place that adds more sectors, reduces industrial wiggle room, and drives more emission reductions. Now it's time to sit back and watch it do its thing. Will a carbon price of €100 Euros per tonne become the norm anytime soon? All signs point to yes, very much so. Now at the top of the show I asked you how big ETS emissions cuts were between 2005 and 2019. 15, 25, 35 or 45%. The correct answer was 35%. Well done to all of you who got that right. You know your carbon markets. The figure will actually rise to 62% if the new agreement is implemented in full. So keep an eye on that. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I'll be back very soon with another instalment. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.